You're listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. We are continuing in this series called Biblical or Revealing Justice. We're examining what biblical justice looks like. And we've had some weeks uh, where the topics have been fairly intense. And uh, that's because the prophets kind of are intense. You know what I'm saying? And that's where we are in our Bible engagement. We did not choose to do this series, Revealing Justice, because uh, the word justice, the idea of justice is a hot topic and we're just trying to be edgy, okay? Uh, We did this because it's in the Bible. So we thought we'd talk about it. And, you know, we wouldn't always necessarily choose for ourselves these kinds of discussions, but we want to be faithful to the Scriptures. I, I realize that this can at times make us uncomfortable. But being uncomfortable is not a sin. It kind of feels that way in our culture sometimes, but it's not. It's not a sin to, to be uncomfortable. In fact, growth usually comes out of discomfort. So if you've gotten behind in your Bible engagement, I want to encourage you, don't lose heart. Jump back in where we are. You're going to grow a whole lot more from what you engage with than what you don't. Uh, You can always catch up later. And we're continuing through the prophets right now, and they're helping us to approach these difficult subjects. And what I would like to do today is tackle this a little bit different from the previous weeks. Like I said, we've, we've had some heaviness, and I don't mind heaviness if it's the right kind of heaviness. But I'd like to do things a little bit more pastoral today. I hope it's okay if we have a little bit more of a conversational approach to this and that we can receive the conviction that does come from God. We can receive it more like Proverbs 27, 6 says, that wounds from a friend can be trusted. So hopefully we can receive it more like a conversation today. So in light of that, we're just going to have a little bit of a different approach. I thought I would just uh, sit down with you today. Hope that's okay uh, for two reasons. Uh, one is my plantar fasciitis is kicking up, and uh, it's on my left heel. That's the one you all make fun of for the donkey kick, and uh, I'm connecting the dots here. Um, the other reason is just because I want this to feel a little bit more pastoral, conversational, like we're sitting in a living room talking about this. Um, you may not know this about me. I'm, I can be fairly uh, energetic. I, I can be, I'm excitable. And I just don't want that kind of intensity to come across in a way that uh, shows some sort of a harshness. So I'm sitting down for this. Uh, Not to be cool, (laughs) but to be calm. And uh, hopefully we can just have a conversation about this. Also, um, it gives our camera operators a break. You guys never get a break. You know what I'm saying? Moving around. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let's hear it for the production team, right? I see that hand. Uh, did you have a question? No, okay. Um, when I was in high school, uh, I would go on Monday nights with our youth minister and we would go calling on students in Joplin. We'd drive around Joplin and go visit students. What I mean by going calling is that we would get in his car and we would go travel around to different parts of the town and we would uh, go visit students to pray with them and encourage them and share scriptures with them, students who were hurting and struggling. And I would do this every Monday night with Jay. Now, you need to know something about Jay St. Clair. 
Jay is a worshiper at heart. It's just who he is. Pretty intense guy. But he loves Jesus very much. And it it was not uncommon for us to get into his really cool Ford Taurus station wagon. Because his had a digital speedometer. My station wagon didn't have a digital speedometer. So his was cool. We'd get in there. He'd be driving. I'd be in the passenger seat. Maybe a few other students in the car. And we'd make our way around Joplin. And he would start to sing. Jay would look at me and go, Oh, Corey, do you love Jesus? And me and my 15-year-old self would roll my eyes and go, Oh, yes, I love Jesus. He'd say, Do you really love Jesus? Yes, I really love Jesus. Tell me, why do you love Jesus? Keep your eyes on the road, Jay. You know, (laughs) here's why I love Jesus. And then everyone in the car, you know, because he first loved me. Do you remember this song? That was almost 30 years ago. About 10 years ago, I'm at a funeral service in Joplin, College Heights Christian Church. Jay's dad, Calvin, had passed away. And I'm sitting in this funeral service when Jay's brother gets up to speak. And his brother says this. You know, when Jay and I were kids, Dad would sometimes put us in the back seat and we'd go around and visit different people in the church and my dad would start to sing, Oh, Jay, do you love Jesus? Well, I just turned into a puddle of goo. I'm crying all over myself because I realized something. I had inherited a song. And I had inherited a story to be a part of. And I had inherited a calling. And somehow, I just felt that I was supposed to be a reflection of that. Well, those are high school days. Fast forward a few years, Miss Leah and I have just gotten married. About two years later, we had our first child. I remember the night that we're bringing, we brought Ethan home from the hospital And we laid him in the crib there in our little house in Chanute, Kansas, the little church that we were serving before coming here. And and, um, we laid him in the crib, and Leah began to sing a song that I had never heard before. It goes like this. He has told the old man what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee? But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. It's Micah 6.8. We've sung this song to our kids for over 20 years now. We actually just sung it to our, our youngest, Caleb Micah, last night. I didn't know this when I first heard that song, but that was the song that Leah's mom had sung to her. And I learned once again, I have inherited a song. And I had inherited a story to be a part of. And I had inherited a calling. And somehow I just felt like I was supposed to be a reflection of that calling. Micah 6.8 is our text today. Micah 6.8 confronts me. Because for as beautiful as a song as it is, it has a way of judging me. Now, in my natural inclination with that kind of a situation is to kind of hold it at arm's length, right? When I feel confronted. But I have found that when that conviction comes from the Word of God, which that's its job, right? 
2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scriptures God breathed and is useful for correcting me. I have to be wrong at some point to be corrected. That's its job. Correct me. And when that conviction comes from the, the scriptures and from the Holy Spirit, and that's the Holy Spirit's job too, you know. Jesus said in John 16.8 that the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin. So when the conviction comes from the scriptures and the Holy Spirit, I just know that it's for my healing it's for my growth, and I've got a lot, of doing, a lot of growing to do on this subject. The Holy Spirit and the Scriptures give us conviction about what we've done wrong, but they also provide clarity on what is right. And it may come across as judgment against us, but you know what? God is the judge, and I can trust him. That's his job. Here's what I came to say today. The justice of God works. By doing, by doing, doing what is just through kindness and humility. The justice of God works by doing what is just through kindness and humility. Open up your Bibles to the book of Micah, the prophet Micah. Now the name Micah means who is like God? It's a question. Who's like the Lord? Well, of course, the obvious answer is no one. No one is like the Lord. He stands alone. And the name would have, been, would have been pronounced Micah. And he served the people of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, in about the year 725 B.C. And uh, he was a country boy. Micah was a country boy. The only reason I mention that is just because here in a little bit, we're also going to be hearing from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah also prophesied at that same time. He ministered at that same time also to the people of the southern kingdom, to Judah, except he was in the city of Jerusalem. So you have Micah in the country and, and uh, Isaiah in the city, a country boy and a city boy, and they're going to provide two images of the way that God's justice works for us. The primary image of the book of Micah is that of a judge. Now, I want to hear from you for just a second. When I say the word judge, I want to know what comes to your mind. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of judge? Court. Court? Okay. I was like, please, nobody say Judge Judy. That it would change, change us, right? Court. Courtroom. It's probably an image of a, a woman or a man in a, in a black robe, right? Sitting behind a big desk gavel in hand, slamming that thing down and pronouncing judgment. It's pronouncing a decision for somebody else to employ, right? That is not what Old Testament Jews would have had in mind when they thought of this idea of judge. Their mind would have gone to the book of Judges. It's someone who is active. They get involved. They put their boots on and they get to work. Now there's good judges and there's bad judges, but they're all active judges. You, you've got uh, Othniel right? He went out to fight against the king of Aram. You have Ehud, left-handed dude, who stabs Eglon, right? And all the fat just, you know, over him like that, right? It's real gross. Uh, you've got Deborah. Deborah uh, led the Israelites into battle uh, and defeated Sisera at the hand of Jael. Do you remember the, the tent peg through the temple? She nailed him to the ground, right? And Deborah sang a song about it. It's a beautiful piece, if you ever had a chance to hear it. Um, when, when God's justice goes to work, it gets involved. It doesn't just sit there and make pronouncements for other people. It puts its boots on, and it gets to work. And when we look at the way that God's justice works in this world, we're going to see that it gets involved. 
Here's my question. How? That's important. How does the justice of God get to work? Because we see people all over the globe trying to employ justice. Put it to work. But I want to look at how does God employ it? So we're just going to start with our text here. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case. Well, okay. All right, we'll do that. All right, stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you, mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, and also Aaron, Miriam, my people. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? These are rhetorical questions here. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It just kind of seems like sarcasm, like sarcasm. You know what I'm saying? Like he's upset. Like he's frustrated. I don't know about you. God sounds kind of angry here. But to the original audience, that's not the tone they would have heard. The tone they would have heard would have been more like a wounded parent rather than an outraged plaintiff. What God is doing here is he is reminding the people of the song and the story and the calling that they had received and were a part of. In verses 2 to 5, God gets historical. Through the poetry, the song of the prophet, he uses that story to remind God's people about how he had redeemed them, delivered them, provided for them with righteous acts. And now it's his turn to speak truthfully and accurately to them. In verses 6 and 7, he asks all these questions. These questions imply these people didn't understand who God was. They didn't know what he was about. I like how James Smith's commentary on Micah sums this up. He says, Humility before God requires obedience to his word. Without that, ritual humility is a sham. Just this, this piety, for piety's sake. It's a sham. And at the end of all of this, one thing is clear. God's judgment reveals that Israel did not know God. They thought they knew God, but they didn't live for him. So God bottom lines the discussion here in verse 8. He has told you, O man. Can you hear the parent's tone in that? What parent in this room hasn't at one point said to their kid, we've talked about this. It happens when I'm laying my kids down in bed. We've talked about this. And that's when God goes, and we've talked about this to me. I put it in writing. It's even in red, you know. (laughs) And that's when I'm laying my kids down and God just tells me to go, you know. We've talked about this. He's told you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. Let's break those three down. First of all, do justice. Put it into action. It's active. It doesn't just sit there. It doesn't just make decisions for other people to employ. It gets involved. 
James Smith in his commentary, he goes on to say this. Practicing judgment or justice means to uphold what is right according to the will of Yahweh. Upholding what is right often requires the sacrifice of personal aims and ambitions. Let me ask you a question. When you uphold what is right and good in this world, does it cost you anything? Like, really? Does it really cost you anything? Because for God's justice to work in this world, it's got to work through active and self-sacrificial love. And this is nothing new, right? He's told you, oh man, we've already talked about this. Where? Where did we talk about this? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. God spelled it out. There's a lot of same language on, in those verses. Micah 6, 8 is just a reminder of that. It's a reflection of that. According to God, this is what he applauds. This is what's good. In Chris Galanos' book, From Megachurch to Multiplication, he tells the story of a transition in his church in Lubbock, Texas. It was a transition that they made about their 10-year anniversary. At that point, they were running about 10,000 in attendance. They had multiple campuses, and they were transitioning to what he refers to as a hybrid model where they maintained the large church, but they also uh, started a disciple-making movement format uh, like in house churches, okay? They were doing both. The reason for this transition is because they saw just how effective their model, or this model from around the world was in making disciple makers, not just church attenders. There's a difference. Did you know that? There's a difference between disciple makers and church attenders. And in chapter 12, he highlights the value of a focus on God's word in disciple making movements. And you might think to yourself, well, we're focused on God's word. And you're right. It's central to our identity and what we believe. But my question is this. Do we actually put it into practice? Do we actually put it into practice? Let me ask you a question. Would you consider Northside to be a knowledge-based discipleship model or an obedience-based discipleship model? Before you answer, I wonder how many of you are thinking, is this a trick question? It is. It's a trick question. So maybe I need to clear it up a little bit. I'm going to let Chris do it from his book here. I just want you to listen to what he says. Now, he's going to refer to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. This is when Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. He refers to that verse, and Chris writes this. Too often, we remember Matthew seven twenty four as, we are like people who build our house on solid rock if we listen to Jesus. That's not it. We've got it wrong. A solid foundation doesn't just come from listening to Jesus. Many of us are really good at that. It actually comes from taking it a step further and obeying Jesus. In other words, it's about obedience-based discipleship, a concept in Scripture that our friends overseas have helped us rediscover. Disciple-making movement practitioners measure spiritual growth by gauging how much people are obeying Jesus, not, much, not how much they know about Jesus. The Pharisees knew a lot. Jesus didn't give them credit for that. The disciples didn't know as much, but they followed Jesus and obeyed him, though not perfectly. Jesus took a special interest in and gave the Great Commission to the disciples, the ones who acted on what they knew. Now, I'm not suggesting that we never have a focus on obedience here. I'm not saying that. We do. Sunday mornings, we make calls for obedience. And even in our life groups, those are great settings to grow in our obedience. But let me ask you this question. How many of us 
have had an encounter with God's word, made a decision to obey it, and had someone the very next week come up to us and say, how are you doing on obeying that? It probably doesn't happen very often. I would argue that we are a knowledge-based discipleship model. And we're not unlike many of the churches in the United States. Much of us, many of our churches in the United States are like that. Knowledge-based. Because we leave settings like this and we go, that gives me something to think about. You know, instead, instead, I don't even know why I did that accent. Um, (laughs) Instead, I think we need to be more obedience-based. We need to put it into practice. Micah 6.8 makes it clear. Do it. Do justice. Put it to work. Put it to practice. Years ago, I heard a story about a preacher. He was new to town. And it was his very first sermon at this new church. And it was a marvelous sermon. And everybody told him afterwards, shaking hands as they're leaving, good sermon, good sermon, good sermon. You didn't spit or nothing. Good sermon, good sermon. Well, the next Sunday rolls around, he gets up to preach, and he preaches the exact same sermon, word for word. And everyone's kind of looking at one another going, is this just me? Is, does this sound the same to you? And, uh, but they thought, you know, uh, busy week. He just moved to town. He's meeting people, didn't have time to write a new sermon. We'll cut him some slack. Third Sunday rolls around, he gets up to preach, and he preaches the exact same sermon, word for word. And by this point, the elders are going, uh, we got to talk about this, right? So after the service, they, they pull him aside in the lobby, and they say, look, we, um, we love you. Uh, we're glad you're here, but we just want to know, should we brace ourselves for this message the rest of our lives? And he said, I'll tell you what. I'll write a new sermon when you obey the first one. And I think James 1.22 makes it clear. Be doers of the word. And not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He doesn't say to be tweeters of the word. Or retweeters of the word. Or posters of the word. Reposters of the word. Sharers of the word. Be doers of the word. The second aspect of Micah 6 is this, to love kindness. Some, some versions might say mercy. Love mercy. The justice that God desires is based on kindness and mercy. And for God's justice to get to work in the world, people must work it out with kindness and mercy. This addresses the how. How do we enact God's justice in the world? How do we put it to work? Will you do it through kindness? Uh, years ago, I was in my office it was a Wednesday morning, ladies' Bible study was going on, and a dear lady in our church poked her head in my office, and she said, do you have time to visit with so-and-so? She named this older gentleman in our church, and I said, oh, yes, because I love this man. He is kind, he is joyful, he is generous, he is Christ-like, and I was like, I would love to visit with him. It's always a good thing. So she brought him in, and he was mad at me, livid, red in the face, yelling at me, pointing point his finger in my chest telling me all the stuff I was doing wrong in ministry. And I, obviously, I didn't expect this, right? So, like, I'm dumbfounded. I have no idea where this is coming from. I don't even know what to say. I'm bumbling over my words, and finally something came out like, I just, I, I don't, I'm sorry. And he said, you're sorry? That doesn't cut it. I said, I don't, I don't know what you want me to do. I don't know what I can do to help with this. And he said, we're going to talk to Wayne about this right now. I said, well, listen, I am... Um, I don't make Wayne's schedule. I'll go check. He's like, you do that. So I go in Wayne's office. And I said, hey, I don't know what is going on here. 
And I unpacked the story for him. And Wayne said this. Did you know he's in the beginning stages of dementia? I had no idea. But my understanding went up. My compassion joined it. Right? Oh, I had no idea. He said, go get him. Bring him in. So I brought him in. He's still mad. Wayne puts his arm around him and he says, hey, I just want you to know uh, we love you and we're going to work through this. But how you say things matters. And I've never forgotten this lesson. How you do what's right matters. When you enact justice, do you do it with mercy? Because how you do it matters. It's got to be done with mercy. Oh, we can stand for what's true. Yes, we can stand for what's true. But we do it in mercy. And that's a beautiful Hebrew word, hesed. Hesed. Beautiful word. But it, it has nothing, it has very little to do with just warm feelings. It has everything to do with action. Putting it to work in a loving way. As if you're covenant brothers. That's the idea of the word. I want to jump to Isaiah for a minute. Remember, Isaiah and Micah worked together, one in the country, one in the city. Isaiah chapters 40 to 54, some scholars will refer to that as third Isaiah. It's a big chunk, and it has to do with this role of the servant, the servant. Ethan, my son in our time of communion, he, he addressed this earlier. Um, but those words in Isaiah 53, which falls in that chunk, You know, when we read those, we immediately go to Jesus. But for 700 years, the the Jews could not have done that, right? So it has to mean something else as well. And it also means that the people of God are to be this servant. They're to live this out. And what the people of God did very poorly, Jesus did perfectly. Jesus perfectly fulfills the role of the servant in Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4, we see how God enacts justice. Listen to these words. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I've put my spirit on him. He'll bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. See, the the overall context of that passage is Justice, but the way, the way, the method that the servant uses to enact that justice is through kindness, gentleness, and patience. Verse 3, it says, a bruised reed he will not break. In other words, he's not going to go up to something that's wounded and just go, oh, let's just get this over with. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In other words, he's going to let things run their course. He's going to be patient. You see, the justice and love of God go together. And they were meant to go together. A few weeks ago, my bride and I were able to go to the Pregnancy Care Center annual banquet at the Oasis Convention Center. We got to hear Dr. Alveda King share. And uh, that night, we bought a book, and she signed it for us. And we got to meet her, and it was a wonderful evening to hear the niece of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Uh, share that evening. We were so glad, uh, even as she worked as a youth organizer in those days of the civil rights movement. I've read some of that book already, and in one chapter she said this, God's justice is always righteous and loving. 
God's justice is always righteous and loving. And, and of course, the whole evening that night was about Pregnancy Care Center. But Dr. King was asked by the host that evening, she was asked to connect some dots regarding how compassion ministries like Pregnancy Care Center um, dovetail with the civil rights movement. And she pinpointed some steps that they follow. Why don't you give your attention to the screen and hear what she said. Are there lessons for the pro-life movement from the civil rights movement, things that we can learn? What we did, and I say we, people always say, I'm 71 now myself. Well, your uncle and your father, your grandfather, I was a youth organizer in the 1960s. And as I was helping and informing and educating with awareness, we led all of our movements with prayer. We started with prayer. And then from there, we had solutions. As a matter of fact, if you disagreed with someone, if there was a big issue like today, we have CRT or what's going on with the war in Ukraine, COVID arguments, all those types of things that can divide. The reason we did not divide was there were six simple steps. You get your information, not your opinion, not how you feel, but just real genuine information. And you begin with awareness to get that out to the community. And then you begin to really educate and inform. That's step two. And then step three, you examine yourself. Am I really in a good spirit? Do I really want things to be better or do I just want to be right? And once that's resolved, then you're ready to talk within the community. And if the talks don't work in and of themselves, you protest peacefully. Not burning, looting, yelling, fighting. You know, think about this. At Thanksgiving during COVID, my family, we wanted, we couldn't get together. So the first Thanksgiving, I got in my car and I cooked up all the dinner I always cooked. And I dropped it around people's houses, blew the horn, they came out and got it. The next year, we could get back together and we were having disputes over everything I just named. <laughs> so this is what I told them. I said, okay, we're going to have Thanksgiving going to have a nice big turkey with two legs. Now, we're not going to argue because I'm going to take the leg off and pop you with it if you don't agree with me. <laughs> so we just agreed not to. And then Christmas, of course, was coming. And I said, Christmas is coming. If you're mad with me, you're not bringing a present and I'm not giving you one. So we are not fighting. So we had to go through these steps. And then with prayer and peaceful pro protest, number six, should be reconciliation. That's the six steps. But you have to practice that. And if you find that in your own community, you're arguing, not getting along, want to unfriend each other on social media, and all of that. No, 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 no. We knew that we had to pray. We had to get guidance from the Word of God and from God. We had to love and forgive which is very important. Forgiveness is important and repentance and forgiveness, which you also see at PCC. Getting that mother or even that father to understand that this is not the unpardonable sin. God will receive you, take you back. And then you have to have genuine solutions. So that's what we did in the civil rights movement. And the more prayer we have now, we can find out that we're going to have more solutions as well. For the sake of time, uh, I'm not going to go through all six of those. You can see those on the screen here. But as you look through those six steps that they followed, I want to ask you this one question. Um, do you know what that process aiming toward justice takes? Time. It takes time 
And unfortunately, we don't often give ourselves enough time to be patient and seek God. We just react, retaliate. But the servant of God and the people who reflect the servant of God will be gentle, kind, and patient. God's justice works through kindness. And it's how he approached you too. Look at this passage from 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Well, that sounds like the servant of Isaiah to me. If God has worked justice toward you through kindness in Christ, then shouldn't we work justice to the world through kindness as well? Here's the third part of Micah 6 8. Walk humbly. Walk humbly. Now, the lines kind of blur here between kindness and humility, and I think it's okay. Walking humbly with God is the MO of how we exercise God's justice in the world. The idea of humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's just that we hold loosely to our own ways. To walk humbly with the Lord, that's, that's the most important part, with the Lord, is that we hold loosely to our own ways and we hold fast to the ways of God. That's what it means to be humble, to walk humbly with the Lord. The word humbly suggests modesty. And a few days ago in our Bible engagement, we were reading in Zephaniah chapter 3, where God says that he will leave a remnant of meek and humble people. The story of the Bible is that God values meekness. You look at Jesus in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. He's applauding those who are meek. Blessed are the meek. God loves humility. And it's in this quietness of our soul where we don't feel the need to pop off every time there's a mention of injustice. It allows us to to flow in the stream of God's mercy. The the stream of God's mercy is so deep. And if you've heard that that expression that still waters run deep, it's that same idea. The stream of God's mercy is so deep that there is a calmness about it. And when we find ourselves walking humbly with the Lord in the way of the Lord, there will be a calmness and a quietness and a gentleness in our approach. Our words will be measured And our actions will be filled with compassion. So in Micah 6, 8, we have just been given a song. And as a part of that, you find yourself as a part in part of the story. And I believe that you have received a calling. And the question is, will we reflect that? Will we actually reflect it to the world? As I was working on this message, I, uh, I struggled with this one maybe just a little bit more than I usually would. And to be entirely sure, or to be just open about it, I don't really even know why. I'm not even really sure why. Because I kind of feel like the main idea of this is pretty simple, right? The justice of God works by doing what is just through kindness and humility. That's kind of easy to get up here. But I think maybe one of the most pastoral, shepherding things that I can do for us right now, as we aim to apply this text is to just ask a series of questions. You'll see them on the screens here. I want to encourage you to actually, if you, if you want to, just get out your phone and take a picture of this as we progress because um, leaving here going, well, that gave me something to think about, I think is nearsighted. 
And I think these questions will encourage us to actually put this into practice. So here are the questions. Number one, how can you embrace God's plan for justice in your life? Number two, are there ways that you attempt to enact God's justice that lack love? If so, how can that change this week? Here's the next question. Do you internally bristle at the mention of this subject? Why? Why? If the command is to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, how much more should you care for those with whom you simply disagree? Last question. Maybe the most important one. How can you reflect the righteousness of God? And who can hold you accountable to do it this week? I want you to consider the bruised reeds of your life. I want you to consider those who are busted and broken, aiming for an identity or a place to belong or significance in this world, and they, they have no idea who Jesus is. They're broken people. I want you to think about who those bruised reeds are in your life. And some of you might be thinking, uh, that's me. I'm, I'm the bruised one. <laughs> I'm the broken one. And if you need somebody to visit with, to talk to, or pray with about that, I would love to do that today. I'm going to be in our decision point area out these doors. Love for you to join me out there as we sing here in just a moment. Or maybe you just want to go online and fill out the form there um, so that we can follow up with you later on. One of the reasons that I'm really glad to partner with Black Box International is because they're doing exactly what we're talking about today. They are taking the initiative to go to the bruised reeds, to broken people, and show the justice, the righteousness of God through kindness, gentleness, and patience. So when you give your offerings today, whether the boxes around the room or online, like you see on the information on the screen, uh, when you give, just know that those funds will help to further that work uh, there at Black Box International. Here in just a moment, we're going to be singing a song that acknowledges the never-ceasing streams of God's mercy. Can I give you an encouragement here? Don't cut off the flow. Don't be the one that cuts off the flow of God's mercy to the world. Don't stand in the way so that the world misses mercy. May we be a people who reflect the righteousness of God by getting involved and doing it with kindness and humility. Jesus, that's our prayer. We we pray for your help in this. We can't do it by ourselves. Even with our best intentions, we can't do this by ourselves. Strengthen us. Use us. May the world know how merciful you are. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand as we sing together? Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. 
We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.